There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear. No more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. What a day, glorious day that will be. Well, I guess one of the benefits of everybody being out sick is I get to sing a little bit, do some of that, and I enjoy jumping in there with those guys. They do such a great job, and so if I can ever be a part of it, I want to be, and uh, boy, they, I'll tell you, I've been encouraged by the trio, and like I say, I get to jump in there where Cody's unable to sing today, so that worked out good for me. Anyway, take your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to look at verse 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. A simple thought today, just something simple, something I think will be an encouragement and a help to us as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. <clears throat> Father, we come to you, we ask, Lord, you'd bless this time together in your word. Now be glorified in it. We thank you for this group that has gathered. What a wonderful group tonight. We thank you for those that are watching via the live stream. We ask that you would continue to touch their bodies, meet their needs. And Father, just encourage them in the things of Christ. We need you tonight. 
we surrender this service to you, asking you to do a miracle in our hearts. Father, be glorified now in all that's said and done in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we read, For ye see your calling, brethren, are there not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. <clears throat> now we are introduced to a passage that draws a picture of those who Christ himself chooses or calls into service. From the world's perspective, this is a very unlikely group to succeed in promoting the gospel and spreading Christianity around the world. The fact is, is that when the Bible speaks of Christ calling men and women to himself, he is referring to calling them out of sin into salvation for sure. But there's also an element of service where God will call a person into service. Now I want you to understand, and I think it's pretty obvious to you that are gathered tonight, <clears throat> that God calls us all to serve. But who does he call? Who does he choose? Well, the Bible seems pretty clear on that issue. He chooses the foolish things. He chooses those weak things. He chooses base things, things that are despised and things which are not. And that would seem an unlikely lot to carry out the Word of God and the work of God. And yet those are the ones who God seems so often and shares with us in His Scriptures that He chooses. We're reminded of Peter and John and how they were viewed in the world's eyes. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. An amazing group of people here, uh, Peter and John, as they're ministering unto the lost, trying to reach a world with the gospel, and yet the world sees them in a miraculous way, an amazing way. And not necessarily the way many of us would like to be seen, but certainly the way God would have us be seen. Notice it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 verse 13, they say as they viewed the boldness of Peter and John, they said, boy, these are some unlearned and ignorant men. These are not the kind of men that have been to college necessarily. They haven't received any kind of degrees. They are not in any way, uh, <clears throat> you know, educated in the ways of the world or in the university in any stretch of the imagination. These are unlearned and ignorant men. They're not scholastically solid or trained at all. These guys are just run-of-the-mill Common Joes, and yet what did they note? They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. <clears throat> Ultimately, we know that men like 
Peter and John and the other disciples would ultimately go on to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And yet they were unlearned and ignorant men in the eyes of others. They were the very ones that Christ describes and defines here in 1 Corinthians when he says he hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why in the world does he choose these? Why wouldn't he choose men and women with tremendous educations and unbelievable potential in the world's eyes? The Bible gives us the answer in verse 29 that he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory. That idea of flesh, glory. No flesh should glory, it says. Now, I want to kind of move away a little bit from the message and just read something that I read from Tozer here recently that I find to be extremely interesting and I think fits perfectly here. When we consider this thought, this idea that there is no place for self in the service of the king. Tozer says the natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relationship to his own. In all else, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God. In his own life, he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes self, capital S. And in this, he unconsciously imitates Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning, who said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I'll be like the Most High. Yet so subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he's unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He's willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. He concludes this portion by saying, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares... I am. Isn't that interesting? When it's all said and done, the Lord Jesus Christ chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, things that are despised and things which are not, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's really the real main reason, at least as he defines it. I'm sure there are many others that are much more qualified and capable, but there are none that he chooses to use better suited than those foolish things, base things, weak things, despised things, and things that are not. Because otherwise, his goal would not be accomplished 
Otherwise, the flesh would be exalted. That no flesh should glory in his presence. So God chooses to use an unlikely lot. And for you and I tonight, that's a blessing. It's wonderful to know that God will use us no matter where we're at, no matter what the circumstance of our life is, if we will yield and permit it. We learn simply to say yes. The choice is ours. So who does God choose or call? Well, we noted there in the passage a number of descriptive terms. But I want to turn to just a couple of examples in the Word of God that I think help to define it even a little bit more. Not that I need to help God in the least, but I think it'll be helpful to each of us. So first of all, let's consider David for a moment. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. In verse 4, we read, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. It came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And Samuel made Shema to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? He said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. I think it's important to note that God doesn't always call or choose the one at the head of the line. We think of Eliab. He was a perfect candidate to be the next king. He certainly appeared to be the perfect one. I mean, even Samuel himself looks and thinks to himself, this has got to be the next king of Israel. But God doesn't always call or choose the one at the head of the line. Not only that, but God doesn't always call or choose the one everybody else would. I mean, as we look at these other candidates as the sons of Jesse pass by, there's no doubt that each of them's thinking to themselves, man, it could be me. And then some of the brothers, well, it's probably him. And there's a number of folks there, even Samuel and, and Jesse, and some of the brothers probably thought, oh, Eliab's got to be the one. And yeah, 
But see, God doesn't always call or choose the one everybody else would. As a matter of fact, in verse 6 and 7, it came to pass and they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But he says, Hey, hold on a second, Samuel. Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature. I've refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Well, how's man see? Man looketh on the outward, but the Lord looketh on the heart. It was May the 22nd, 2017. An Islamic terrorist, excuse me, an Islamic extremist, I should say, set off a terrorist bomb, a homemade bomb, by the way, in Manchester, England, following a particular concert. A homeless man by the name of Stephen Jones had been sleeping on the street outside the arena when the blast occurred. As soon as he saw the wounded survivors, most of them were children, by the way, he rushed in to help. He pulled the nails from that homemade bomb out of their skin. Stephen, a former bricklayer with no medical experience, was a highly unlikely first responder, to say the least. But that didn't stop him at all. Later, they hailed him as a hero. He simply shrugged it off. He said, I class myself as a normal citizen that would have done the same as anybody else would have done. So many times we look on the outward, so many times we find ourselves thinking, surely God's got to call somebody, and it would be this person. Look at them. They obviously fit the bill. They're the perfect candidate. They're the perfect one for the job. And there would have been very few people that would have picked Stephen that day to be the hero. And yet he was a hero. See, God doesn't always call or choose the one at the head of the line. He doesn't always call or choose the one everybody else would. He doesn't always call or choose the one that catches man's eye. Again, the brothers pass by one by one. In 1 Samuel, we see that God chooses or calls the least. That he calls and chooses the forgotten. That he calls and chooses the overlooked many times. You could go back through history and you could look at men and women that God has used miraculously. And you would find that as a whole, they were considered the least. They were the forgotten. They were the overlooked. And yet God used them. It's interesting to note that those impressive brothers, you know, the ones that first lined up before Samuel, the ones that most believed would be the next king, they were nowhere to be found when Goliath was blaspheming the name of the Lord. It would be little David who would step up. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. I think it's wise to consider Moses. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. 
Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 4. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the backside of the desert, came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and beheld, behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt? I think I, I don't know about you. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd have ran or I don't know if I'd have thought this is too wild, too crazy. I'm out. Or if I'd have thought, you know, I'm curious. I want to see what in the world's going on. You know, we are very curious, aren't we, as human beings? We probably, like Moses, would have went and taken a look and to see what was going on. Well, Moses did. And the Bible says that he turned aside to see this great sight, why the bush was not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. I think it's interesting as we consider Moses in his life in relationship to who God calls and who God uses. I think it's Fair to say that God calls and chooses those who have made mistakes. In the book of Exodus chapter 2, we could take the time to read, but we'd find that Moses in an attempt to somehow help God out, if you would, and to help the people of God, kills an Egyptian. Ultimately, God would use Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. But the time frame was incorrect. It wasn't the right time for Moses. And Moses made a, missed a mistake, if you will. He stepped in where he was not supposed to step in yet. He made a mistake. As a result of that mistake, it was known that he had murdered an Egyptian. And as a result, the Pharaoh had even put a price on his head, if you will, sought his life, and so Moses fled and so now for 40 years on the backside of a desert, he works and for his father-in-law, caring for sheep, and God calls him. God chooses him, even though he'd made a mistake. You say, murdering a guy's a big mistake. Well... When we think about it in our minds, it's as though we've done it, the Bible says, so we'll just leave it at that. Huh? God calls and chooses those who live in obscurity. You say, I'm nobody. I'm, nobody knows who I am. Nobody even knows where I'm at. Well, God does. For 40 years on the backside of a desert, God knew right where Moses was. He can try to hide in the mountains. He can try to hide in the woods. You can try to hide wherever you choose. You can even go into the belly of a whale. God knows where you're at. 
God calls and chooses those who have made mistakes. So if God wouldn't use me, oh, sure he can. But I find myself, I'm not in the public eye. I'm nobody. I'm just a little person. I'm back in the corner somewhere. Oh, God knows where you're at. But God calls and chooses those who lack confidence even. It's interesting as we look at Exodus chapter 4, we move on into chapter 4 of Exodus. We read in verse 1 and 2, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they'll not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. We know that he would go on to tell him to cast the rod down. We know that he would give him some signs and wonders to share with the people. By the way, the Jew requires a sign. That's why tongues and all the different uh, wonderful uh, um, gifts were given for the Jew. Not for you, not for I. It wasn't for the Gentile that the gifts were needed. It was for the Jew who needs a sign, who requires a sign. And one day when the church is removed out of this world at the rapture and the tribulation begins and God begins to deal with his people Israel again, guess what will be required? Signs. Moses says, who am I? They're not going to believe me. I'm a nobody. Man, I've been on the run for 40 years. Moses, he goes on to complain that he just can't speak. How many times have we used that excuse? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, And Moses said unto the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore, for since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Seems to be doing pretty good with God. So he comes up with all kinds of excuses uh, why he cannot be used of God. He says, I just don't speak well. I'm not very eloquent, Lord. You know, there's so many more people that are better equipped than I, more capable than I. You want someone to go speak to Pharaoh? You want somebody to represent you for the people of God? There's got to be somebody better than me. That's one of the reasons why he called Moses, don't you think? Because he did have a good or a broken spirit in that regard. See, God calls and chooses those who have made mistakes, those who live in obscurity, those who lack confidence. Let's consider Paul the apostle for a moment. Turn to, if you would, to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. In the book of Acts chapter 9, we read of the miraculous conversion of Paul, who was at that time named Saul. The Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 9, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest. Now, I'm not sure where you've been in your life. I don't know <clears throat> what kind of sin you found yourself in. I don't know how deep into sin you've gotten 
at some point in your life. But I can tell you this, more than likely, it wasn't quite as deep as the Apostle Paul's. There's a good chance you didn't murder Christians. There's a good chance you didn't make it your life work to destroy the name of Christ. You may have done some pretty wicked things. And God in his mercy forgave. But we have an example of a man who, pretty big sinner here. Can I tell you that God calls and chooses the biggest sinners? There came a point where this, uh, this man, this Saul of Tarsus, met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Ultimately, Paul would rehearse that meeting as a means of testifying. In the book of Acts 26, verse 16, the Bible says, he said, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness. And he's sharing the story now of these things which thou hast seen and of those things which I will appear unto thee. And he says, as a means of testimony that he sent me to deliver thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. I mean, he's using one of the greatest sinners of all time to truly transform and change the world. By the way, God using the greatest sinners isn't that unusual, is it? In Luke chapter 7, turn if you would please there, verse 37, Luke 7, 37. There we read in verse 37 of Luke chapter 7, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. I don't know that there would have been a woman in the city that wasn't a sinner. Or a man. Just throw that in because some of you thought I was being derogatory toward ladies. But interesting how it says, and behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, drawing attention to the fact of her character, the, 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 the reputation of this woman being that of a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee saw which had bidden him, or excuse me, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she's a sin. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, Say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. By the way, I think it's important to real, remember and realize that God can read our minds. He knows exactly what we're thinking. There are no secrets between us and our Creator. 
Satan cannot read your mind. Be careful what you say around him. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding, the Bible says. Can I tell you, Satan hears your words or has his demonic principalities and powers observing and always on guard listening. Be careful what you say because he can learn a lot about a person just like you and I can from what they say. But God can read our mind. Satan cannot. And in this case, he has read the mind of this Pharisee and he says, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. He said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Wow. I mean, we're talking about those who God calls and those who God chooses. He calls and chooses the biggest sinners. Why? Maybe because when he forgives them, they love him more. You don't have to be saved out of a lifetime of sin, but you have to be very aware of your sin. This idea that the best Christians are the ones who have lived a life of revelry, that's not true. Doesn't have to be. Now, it is true in many cases. But let me tell you, that young child that gets saved, that has a consciousness of sin that is overwhelming and recognizes that only Christ and Christ alone can forgive them, their debt of gratitude can be just as great as the one who's lived the worst life you possibly think of. It's all about the heart. God calls and chooses the biggest sinners. God calls and chooses the most unlikely. In Acts chapter 9, verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Boy, he was an unlikely candidate to carry forth the gospel to the Gentiles. If there was going to be anybody that was going to be effective in reaching the world with the gospel, surely it had to be Peter or one of the disciples. But God calls and chooses the most unlikely. See, in every single case, whether it was David, I mean, whether it was Paul the Apostle, whether it was Moses, in every single case, they heeded the call. 
Somebody said yes to Jesus. Somebody said yes to God. See, David said yes. Moses said yes. Paul said yes. It wasn't a matter of what their pedigree was. It had nothing to do with what their position was. It had everything to do with their willingness to say yes. See, God's not necessarily looking for the biggest, the brightest, or the best today. It seems to me he's looking for the weak, the weary, and the worried. The real question is, are you willing to say yes to God? Are you willing to answer the call? In John chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, we read about a boy who had a simple lunch. Five loaves and two fishes. And yet somehow... 5,000 men were fed. The question isn't whether what we have is good enough for God. It's whether we'll offer what we have for His service. In the end, it's your choice. The choice is yours. Because see, the Bible simply says, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise, after the fl- wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I'm glad that they can be called too. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. I wonder, do you fit that category in any way? Do you find yourself saying, oh, compared to the world, I'm not very wise. I don't know a lot of books. I don't know a lot of things. I don't have much education. Could you say, well, I'm just a weak thing. I'm a base thing. I'm despised by the world. I'm not viewed as being anything special. I'm really a big nothing compared to so many others. Can I tell you that God says he wants to use you? And he will. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. We live in a day where everything is the outside. We view everything from the outside in. But God's looking from the inside out. If he's looking for some giant killers tonight, I promise you, he doesn't care how big your muscles are on the outside. He cares about how big your heart is on the inside. And God will use you where you are today. He'll use you the way you are. He'll take you and transform you and change you and make you exactly what he wants you to be and use you the way only he can. 
but the choice is yours. Are you willing to be saved if you've not been saved? Are you willing to be surrendered? Are you willing to grow in your, in, in your walk and relationship with the Lord to be Christ-like? Are you willing to go on his behalf? He's calling you tonight. He's calling me. And the choice is ours. We can continue in the vein and the direction we've been going. We can choose to withhold our talents and abilities. We can hide them or kind of cover them up because of fear of being exposed for being maybe not talented or not having the abilities and we're so worried that somehow we'll look like a fool before those around us. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'm not really anything special. I, can't, I couldn't be used. There's got to be somebody better suited than me. That's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. But can I tell you, if you have that kind of attitude, more than likely, you're who he's calling today. You're the one who, he's, who's, who he has chosen. And the choice is yours. Let's let God use us tonight. Let's just surrender ourselves to him completely. Let's stand at attention, salute him and say, Mark O'Donnell, reporting for duty, sir. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm yours. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all that you do for us and have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that when we start to question our own ability, when we start to feel like we're not a whole lot of anything, you promise that you'll use us. Matter of fact, you've chosen and you've called exactly what we feel like so many times. And we allow the devil to discourage us, to keep us from taking another step for your glory, when in reality, we're exactly what you're looking for. Oh, you're going to change us. You're going to transform us and conform us into the image of Christ. We understand that. Father, help us to just be willing to choose to let you use us in a special way and not to listen to the lies of Satan who tells us that we're unworthy to serve you, unable to serve you. Lord, we'll thank you and praise you as you give us victory in our lives, as you Give us the strength to yield and surrender to you and watch you do a miracle in our lives like you did Moses and David. Like you did for Gideon, that little boy with five loaves and two fishes. Oh, Father, help us. We need you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed.